Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Our psalm today speaks of the wonders of God that we see in creation. To teach us something about God and about who we are as well. The Psalms are like a songbook for people who are in exile. For people who are having trouble seeing God because they look around at the world and it seems like no one's interested anymore in this supreme being who made the universe. The Psalms give us a vision of who that creator truly is. They take us back to ancient Israel, to the dark night skies, so we can gaze up at the stars and gain a clearer, more robust vision of who our creator is. And today we'll look at that in Psalm chapter 8. The verses will be with me on the screen. You can, you can read along with me in your Bibles if you want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we give those away here. There are a number of Bibles sitting at the back corner over there. Please take one, read it let, it, let it soak into you so that you can be changed by it. Okay, let's read Psalm chapter 8. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You've covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy in the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Psalm 8 is bookended with those two lines, starting and ending with this God, how utterly amazing you are. It says that God is magnificent. That word magnificent means to inspire awe or reverence in the one who is beholding. For David, when he thinks about God, when he tries to get an idea of who God is into his mind, he's caught up in awe. He doesn't know what to say. And, and for me, I immediately think, what made David feel this way? And he says, it's, it's the heavens that God made. It's the moon, it's the stars, how majestic they are. To David, they have, they have glory, they have weight to him. You see, David was a shepherd boy. His job was to be out in the fields watching the sheep. And you know that while he was doing that, he would have spent many a night underneath a dark sky, ironically, probably near the Negev Desert in Israel, gazing up at God's canvas, just looking at all of it. No artificial light, no light pollution, just the sky lit up with God's creation, the moon, the stars, the purple hue of the Milky Way, the constellations in all their glory with nothing to detract from it. And David just stared up in amazement. And in his wonder, 
his thoughts turned to the creator of this vast universe. He said things like, God, you're majestic. You are powerful. You are creative. You are brilliant, God. And that left me reading this psalm with a simple question that I think we probably would all ask, which is, when is the last time that I described God as magnificent? When is the last time that I was as in awe of the Lord as David was when he wrote this? Could it be that we're so focused on the world all around us that we've forgotten what it's like to stare up and see the beauty of God? That's why my first point this morning is that when our eyes are fixed on the world around us, we can't see God clearly. I think part of why God doesn't seem so magnificent to us is the same reason that we struggle to see the stars in a city that's, greater, that's more populated. As the artificial light of our, all of our technology hides the stars, so the light of stuff here on earth can hide who God really is. Our hearts are crowded with love for other things. John Calvin said that our hearts are like idle factories turning things that God made into, into things of worship, giving more, more weight or attention than they should. Ever since the fall, this is what we've been prone to do, to take good gifts from God and then make them ultimate, greater than him, to worship them. How do we do this? Well, in Western culture, we've kind of been sold a lie. We, we hear things like this all the time. You are what you wear, your clothing can define you in a way. What you drive says something about you as Matthew McConaughey falls backwards into a pool. That's what it's like to drive a Lincoln. What on earth does that mean? Who's ever fallen backwards into a pool wearing a suit? If you have, I'd like to talk to you about what that's like. Your experiences set you apart. The things that you take in can, can make your life better. You're special because you have fill in the blank. We're so tempted to define ourselves through the stuff we have and the experiences that we take in. Cultural commentator, pastor in Australian, most likely to be impersonated by city church staff, Mark Sayers, said this. In a commodified culture, we give weight to things that do not deserve mountains of time and attention. What does he mean? Well, I think he means a lot of things. One of the things I think he means is that we seek to enhance our lives through the media that we take in. We'll spend millions of hours working through television series scanning social network sites, downloading music, and playing video games. I'm not saying that those things are evil, but if they take on this major role, this weight in our lives, they'll darken our view of who God is. We seek to enhance our lives through buying more stuff, the newest technology, a new home, a new car, new clothes, unless you bought them from Urban Outfitters, in which case they're old, but they, or they're new, but they look old and you're kind of confused whether or not they're new or not. 
Again, not evil to have any of that stuff. God loves to give us good gifts, but when those things start to grab hold of our hearts in a greater way, there's no room for God anymore. We seek to enhance our lives by the experiences that we take in, attending sporting events, concerts, festivals, road trips, vacations, extreme sports. Again, none of those things, evil or wrong, but intruding into the space that God needs to take in our hearts and lives. When our lives become about acquiring stuff and taking in experiences, we've exchanged God for the stuff that he made. It's a horizontal vision stuck with our our eyes here on earth, not one that's vertical. Rather than being in awe of the God who made the stars, sometimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we're in awe of the stuff that he made. It's almost like instead of saying with David, how magnificent you are, God, in our hearts, we say, how magnificent is all this stuff? which ironically will, end, will lead us to believe that nothing is magnificent at all. Let Travel back in time with me to the year 2009. It's Black Friday, and you've determined that you are going to get the best television that there is out there. You're scanning the aisles at Best Buy, walking through, just trying to find it, and all of a sudden, there it is. The Sony Bravia LCD with 1080 LC, or I don't even know, and motion flow. And it's, it's an entire 40 inches in all its magnitude. Ah. Where is that TV now? College students are like, Elisha, it's in your living room. Hey, hey, watch it. It's at least 48 inches. I'm positive. What's my point? One minute, something that was magnificent. Ironically, a short time later when it's no longer useful or becomes outdated is worthless to us. Should we really love things that are so temporary, that are so quickly rendered useless A life about acquiring stuff and having experiences is an endless cycle of buy, use, discard. It trains our hearts to be dissatisfied, to always want more. And this training will play into our relationship with the Lord. Buy, use, discard. Church, you know... I've gotten a lot out of it, but it isn't really meeting my needs like it used to, so I'll just stop going or maybe get a new one. You know, God, this this Bible, it's hard to understand. It's real weird. I just can't get it. I'm just going to give it up. I'll try something else for my entertainment. Everything, even God, becomes a commodity that can be consumed and then pushed away. Why are we so enamored and caught up with non-weighty things? We've put so much weight and importance on these these non-important things that we can't see the important ones anymore. We've done what Romans 125 said we would do. 
We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've worshiped and served the created things instead of the creator who is praised forever. And I can do the exact same thing. Since I was young, I've always been enamored with sports. I love to see the incredible displays of athleticism, determination through adversity, excellence in situations with incredible pressure. I really enjoy it. And there's ultimately nothing wrong with that. If that leads me back to worshiping the God who made these athletes, who is himself a Trinitarian team that overcame through impossible odds with one of the most least likely scenarios. But so often, instead of leading me to worship of God, it leads me to overindulgence, consumption of not just great moments, but every moment that I can get my hands on. It leads me to distraction so I'm not present with my wife and children. It leads me to meditate on hopes and dreams for the team that I pull for. It leads me to a hunger for more and more information about players and teams so that I miss deep meditation on truth from the God who made sports. And I settle instead for deep meditation on the decisions of 17-year-old kids that could help my team's chances to win a football game. Exchanging the deep truths about a God who, who is this infinite well of personality, this incredible source of power. He's creative, he's perfect, he's the author of all things. Who crafted the perfect ending for mankind out of an impossible start with beings like us who are so busy acquiring, stuffing more information in at lightning fast speeds that we can't even see him anymore. We don't have time to sit down and stare into a majestic dark night sky. Or we've blinded ourselves to that wonder with the bright lights of our consumer culture. More likely to have the lights of a constant of a concert reflecting off our face than the light of a, of a shooting star. And in this moment, we recognize the greatness of God and how we've missed it at times. How we've substituted things in God's place. We feel so very, very small. Then we agree with David, who at this point says, who am I, God? In comparison to your greatness, he agrees with so many other biblical characters who came before him who said, God, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm a sinner. I'm just a man who forgets you so often. But God's greatness shines through in Psalm 8 as we see his mercy toward us, towards mankind. And that's where we realize the second point here tonight that looking up to God empowers us to shine like the stars. David is painfully aware of the gap between himself and God as he ends verses four of Psalm eight and moves, moves forward. He is all the more amazed at the role that God gave mankind at creation. You can see verses Psalm eight, uh, five through eight. The language that he uses here is meant to bring you back to the scene of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1.26 says this, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
They'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. These are all words that are very similar to those that God used in Psalm 8, or that David used in Psalm 8. And what God is saying is that he's making man the caretaker of the animals and of the garden. David describes this act of God to include man in his creation, to give him a role as crowning him with glory and honor. God saw fit to make us like him, to make us in his image. And right after he creates, he turns around to us and he he says, I want you to share in the rule of this creation. I want you to watch over it, to tend this garden, to care for the animals. David recognizes God's incredible mercy. He did not need our help. He didn't need us in any way whatsoever. And yet he delighted to involve us to endow us with meaning and purpose and value that we don't deserve. And so how is it that we are involved? Well, it's not necessarily, you could start a garden and start raising chickens in your backyard. That's fine. That would be a pretty direct application of Genesis 1. But if that's not you, that's okay. There's a lot of other ways that we can do that. And I think one of the main ways that we can do that is by being like God in caring for his creation. Using the creation that he has given us to honor the Lord and bless other people. So these resources that we have, we use those in God-glorifying ways. We're like little creators managing what the creator has put under our care. So what does that look like practically? How do we do that? Well, think about your role, whatever that is, here on work, your job, what role you play in your family. Parents, teachers, grandparents, you might think about your children. And we care for our children, and certainly that means feeding them, it means clothing them. But guys, we live in an age of deep, deep anxiety, Looking at current trends, our kids typically in America have their material needs met, but their anxiety is only growing more and more. So what they need most isn't necessarily for us to help them get more and more stuff to crowd their lives, but it's to shepherd them spiritually and emotionally it emotionally to, and socially to help them learn what it looks like to craft relationships with other people and navigate the complicated worlds of middle school and high school. Good night. If you're a full-time or part-time worker, it's recognizing how your work can be done in a way that gives great glory to God and where you can express care for other people. So often, we only acknowledge the misery that's associated with work. And work is messed up because of sin. But it's very interesting, if you read the creation story, to note work came before sin entered into the world. Work, although it is hard and difficult, can be God-honoring and God-glorifying. And so every single job that exists can be done with dignity and honor. Graphic designer, you add beauty to things just like God does. God didn't have to make sunsets gorgeous, but he did. And when you make a normal spreadsheet that I would give you beautiful, 
then you are imaging God. You're doing something that's like him in a small way. Engineer. God builds bridges that have been broken down between us and himself. You literally build bridges that can help. You do. Maybe. I mean, some different types of engineers, but that connect people together, help people to get places that they wouldn't be able to without you. Imaging God, being like him. Moms, if your child does not learn how to use the bathroom, there's no way they're gonna make it in the eighth grade. Eighth graders are vicious. I'm intimidated by eighth graders. The most basic things of life that you mothers are teaching to your kids how to read, how to use the bathroom, how to be respectful are huge building blocks and cornerstones that those children are gonna draw on for the rest of their lives. You are glorifying and honoring the Lord by spending time with your children and helping them learn basic things. So in our work, we care for other people in a way that images God's glory, that shows his personality inside of us and through what we do in the world. We also do this as a church by caring both for you, your physical, actual neighbors that live next door to you and for us as a church with the neighbors that we have in this city. Every person that we see has significance and value to be treated with respect. If you showed up to Community VBS this last week and you took your time out of your day to care for a child, to try to show them Christ's love, in the way that you prepared food for them and gave it so they'd have something to eat, in the way that you taught a lesson so that they could learn a little bit about who Jesus is, in the way that you engaged with them as you played a game with them and helped them realize that you cared about them, in all those ways, showing the beauty of who God is. When you serve a meal at the journey home, you're being generous with your time so that someone can know, I see you. I see that you are a person. You have dignity, you have worth, you have value, and I want you to eat. That means something to me. When you serve at Portico, you're helping someone with an unforeseen pregnancy and you're seeking them to to help them know that they are not alone, that people can walk alongside them and they can figure out how to take care of that little baby and raise them in the right way. All these ways that as a church and as neighbors, we image the beauty of who God is in the world around us, imitating him. Especially in the way that he cares for the most vulnerable in our society. You might be wondering why I didn't cover verse two. And that's because I was saving it for the end. Psalm 8.2 says this, from the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. And if you're anything like me, first time hearing that, you're probably thinking, what? That is definitely what I thought the first time I read that. What is David talking about here? And luckily, we have a little help from someone who quoted this verse, Jesus. Jesus quoted this verse in Matthew 21, 16. 
It was right after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on, uh, I don't know exactly, but, but near the time that week before he was going to be crucified. And if you remember the story at the very beginning of that week when Jesus is coming into the city, there's all these people that are gathered to, to worship him. They're singing a song, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is a messianic term, meaning they knew when they were singing that, they were saying, this Jesus guy, he's God. He is God come to earth. That's what they were singing. And, you'll know, and, and if you read Matthew 21, 16, Matthew makes an interesting point that it wasn't just the adults who were singing this. It was also little children. It's, I know it says nursing babies and infants in that, but, but through a complicated process, I'm not going to explain. That could also mean children up to the ages of two, three, four years old. And so what, what Matthew has in mind when he's explaining that is, is he's saying the little kids had heard these songs. They may not have fully understood what they were singing, but they just were, they were imitating that. They were singing it as well. The, the scene is where, where this verse comes up exactly. So that they, we had the triumphant entry where they're singing, the adults are singing those songs. Then we get to the temple. And Jesus clears out the temple because there's all these people that are sell it, buying and selling goods that were taking advantage of the people who'd come to make sacrifices to God, selling at exorbitant prices, taking advantage of these, these, these pil- people on pilgrimage to come and worship God. And so Jesus drives them out. He says, hey, this is not about making money. This is about worshiping God. And, and the religious leaders didn't say anything to those people. Jesus is the only one that recognized that something wrong was going on right there. But when the religious leaders hear the little kids in the temple singing, Hosanna to the son of David, praise be to God, they get ticked off. They are angry. And they say to Jesus, do you hear this mess? Are you going to let them sing this? Are you going to let them say that you're the son of God? This is ridiculous, Jesus. You cannot allow this to take place. And Jesus quotes Psalm 8 too, to them. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, guys, you've spent your entire life studying the Torah, studying the Old Testament to understand who this Messiah would be, who this promised one who would come to deliver the people of Israel, to usher in the kingdom. And it was talking about me. You've missed it. And these little kids, they got it. The last point in the sermon today is to see God most clearly. We've got to look down to the most vulnerable. We've got to become the most humble. The weak are putting the strong to shame. Isn't that just like God? Making the strong weak and the weak strong, flipping the script on what we'd expect. This is a pivotal lesson for us to grasp. God comes to those who are willing to acknowledge their weakness before him. God comes to the humble. God comes to the vulnerable. And guys, that's us. 
Every single one of us. Jesus came. He was there. And the religious leaders who who prided themselves on all their knowledge and all their understanding, they missed Jesus because they thought it was about this list of all these things that they could add to the law on this horizontal plane of human relationships. And they forgot to look up and see God and who he was. Jesus has done everything that's needed to bring us back into a relationship with him. That's the beauty of the gospel is that we weak, humble sinners can be reconciled into a relationship with him. And so where we need to be this morning, where we need to be as we stare up at the, st- the, st- the stars in the night sky is that we need to be desperate for the Lord. Desperate, recognizing that we need him to work in our sinful hearts. That we need him to give us compassion for other people so that we don't use people selfishly, but so that we image Jesus in the way that he gave himself up for others. We desperately need God. I've had the privilege of a little son who wakes up at 5 a.m. every day for the last couple months. And most of the time, I don't consider that much of a privilege. Um, But yesterday, uh, when Jack woke up, we went on a long walk. Because he's still tired, he he just is awake. Uh, So just put him in a stroller, and and we walked. And we went on this long walk. And honestly, I, I got lost in the time. He was really content. He probably dozed off a couple times, and I was gone for like two hours. I didn't even know it. Um, it was already 7 a.m. by then. Shocker. Um, so, the, but with the stroller, I was able to kind of, it's, it's a, whatever, there was a handle. I was able to kind of have my Bible laid out. And so it was just, it was just this sweet time of, of walking around our neighborhood, reading my Bible, talking to God, praying. It was an incredibly sweet time of fellowship with God. And you know, towards the end of my walk, it, it, was a, it was kind of an overcast morning. There were lots of mainly just gray clouds in the sky. But towards the end of my walk, it was starting to clear up just a little bit. And it, I, I looked up because there was this open kind of clearing where I could see the sky for just forever, it felt like. And I just looked up at all these intricately shaped clouds, the the gray clouds and there are white clouds that are coming in, all these different beautiful shapes moving by, sunlight peering through the clouds, the, the brightness of blue hues in there at different points. And I just looked up and I thought, this is beautiful. And I don't normally pray like this, but I just looked up and I said, I didn't say father like I'd normally say, but for some reason I just said, Daddy, this is beautiful. This is incredible. You made all of this. You painted this better than I could ever do, than any picture could ever be done. Daddy, thank you for this beautiful picture the exact way that my daughter would probably say to me if I colored a picture for her. And I, I then my thoughts started to turn to you guys. 
And I thought to myself, I'd been thinking all week, God, how on earth am I going to help people leave thinking of you the way you deserve? Worshiping you as you deserve. I can't do it, God. And I prayed for you all, just saying, God, will you reveal yourself to this church? We need to have a ravishing vision of who you are. We need to get lost in your magnificence again. We need to be able to look at your word and meditate on it and come away and say, God, you are magnificent. You are worth my time. You are better than any TV series or concert that I could go to. God, I want more of you. God, I want that for us. I want that for us. I want us to be able to slow down and look up into the sky every now and then and be able to say, Daddy, this is beautiful. You are beautiful. You are powerful. You are amazing. You are worth all of my life. Let me pray that for us right now.